0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information, or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Psalm 63, verses 1-8 through 8 this morning. O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadows of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. And your right hand upholds me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.
1: Amen. You may be seated. So I asked you a question last week. It was somewhere in the middle of the sermon. Probably didn't stick with very many of you. It wasn't the major focus of the text. But that question hadn't let loose of me. It's been rattling around in my head. It's just been filling my heart all week. The question I asked you was this. Is there real, any real evidence that you're living in dependence upon the Holy Spirit? Or the life that you live today, could you live, live it completely separated from Christ? I'm not talking about intellectual belief. I'm not talking about religious practices like coming to church or reading your Bible. Man can do that in the flesh. There's no need of supernatural transformation. There's no need of spiritual gifting. What I mean is this. How can you know that there's a new creation in Christ Jesus? How can you know that you have been transformed? How can you know that you're living in dependence upon him and his spirit? if you don't find yourself doing things which only his spirit can enable you to do. I want to ask you a similar question this morning. Is there anything in your life that provides evidence that you have so placed your faith in Christ, that you have so died to yourself, that you have so given up on the things of this world, that you're in deep trouble if the gospel proves to be a lie? Are you always holding back just enough that you're going to be okay no matter what? I've often used this platform as a picture for true and saving faith. What it really means to place our hope, all of our weight in Jesus Christ. If this platform gives out, I fall. I don't have any backup plan. If this platform fails, I'm going to be in trouble. Now, every, Most every one of us in this room We claim to have placed all our faith all of our hope all of our trust in jesus christ and so i ask you today has that faith led you to live in such a way that if the gospel proves to be a lie you're in deep trouble or have you diversified your portfolio if you hedged your bets just enough that if the kingdom of god fails you'll be just fine and comfortable here in the kingdoms of this world See, that's what most Christians do. They play the odds and they hedge their bets. They never put the full weight of anything in Jesus Christ. They fill their arms with so much of the things of this world. And then they come to Jesus and they say, well, surely there's some room for you in here somewhere. Just find a spot and hop in. Surely you can squeeze in somewhere around the things of this world because I'm not letting go of any of it. They've fallen for the lie that you can follow after Jesus Christ and it'll cost you nothing. They've fallen for the lie that you can have eternal life and give up nothing. They've fallen for the lie that you can enter the kingdom of God and lose nothing. Dear friends, I'm here to tell you today that's a lie. Forgiveness of sin, adoption into the family of God, all the blessings of eternal life, even the faith by which you reach out your hands and receive those things. Those are all the gracious, unmerited gifts of God. There's nothing you can do to earn them. And once he's given them to you, there is nothing that you can do to lose them. But they will cost you everything. I don't speak in hyperbole here. Following Jesus will cost you everything. He was surrounded by a great crowd. His popularity was at an all-time high. People were desperate to be near him. They started to sense that maybe he was, in fact, the Christ, Messiah. They wanted all the gifts that came from being associated with Jesus. So Jesus began to speak to them about the cost of discipleship. He said, very well, you want to follow me. You want to enter into my kingdom. Let me make very clear what the terms are. This isn't going to be a bait and switch. This is what's going to cost you to follow me. This is the fine print, but it's not hidden. I'm putting it before you so that you'll know on the front end exactly what it is that you're signing up for. We read about this in Luke 14. This is a long text, verse 26 to 33. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and he was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You want eternal life? You want to follow Jesus, then you better count the cost. What will it cost? That's a fair question. You want to follow after me, you got to count the cost. Very well, what will it cost me? Everything. What do you have today? It'll cost you that. What do you hope to have tomorrow? It'll cost you that too. Your name Your relationships, your reputation, your comfort, your kingdom, your right to be offended, your money, your children, your livelihood, everything. Following Jesus Christ will cost you everything. And you don't get to wait and see later. You don't get to start down this path with Jesus and then at each point hit the pause button and determine whether you're willing to give what it takes to continue on with him. On the front end, you give it all. Jesus says you must renounce all that you have. Apatasso is the word in Greek. It's translated to renounce. It can also be translated to say farewell. Everything that you have, say goodbye. It's not yours anymore. All of it. It is gone. Give it up. He may allow you to hold on to some of it for a minute. Some portion of that may stay in your pocket for a season. But don't ever get it twisted. You will say goodbye to all. You will renounce All or you will not be able to follow Jesus. Jesus revealed this to a rich young ruler, this young man that had come to him. And in the end, he went away sad because he has acquired so much. His estate was too large and he counted the cost and determined it was too much. But at least he was honest. Jesus didn't run after the man. He didn't renegotiate, he didn't lower the bar. Jesus loved the man so he told him the truth you want to follow after me, you want to have eternal life, it will cost you everything. And I see in your heart that this great wealth has so captured you. It has so enraptured your soul that I'm going to go ahead and demand it all now. But the man had so much, he wouldn't let go. Now Jesus didn't need anything. He called the man to sell all that he had and give it to the poor. He promised the man that if he would do this, He would find great treasures in heaven. He was calling the man for once in his life to trade up. The man had too much wealth. He loved his stuff and he loved the sense of security that it brought him. And so he would not let loose. He would not take hold of eternal life. He traded eternal heavenly treasures for the temporary stuff of this world. So as a result, he went away sad, holding tight to the idol that was his wealth. And Jesus' disciples, they were blown away. You see, it was universally assumed that the rich people were under the blessing of God. Wealth was seen almost universally as a sign of spiritual approval, a divine favor. And so they asked, if this man can't be saved, then who can? Jesus said, no one. With man, it is impossible. The riches of this world are too enticing, they're too alluring. And our hearts are too hardened, they're too shallow, they're too stupid to let loose of the things of this world and cling to the promises of Jesus Christ. Natural man, he loves this world way too much to ever let loose and hold on to Jesus Christ. Pieces and parts, sure, but man does not have the ability to let loose of everything, and the cost is everything. Jesus loved the man, and so he let him walk away because he knows with man it is impossible. Only God can do this impossible thing. Only God can change a man's heart. Only God can turn a man's affections only God can turn a cause a man to let loose of that which he has counted as everything and hold on to Jesus Christ. Only God can do this supernatural work. Only God can lead a man to salvation. This man didn't see Jesus as everything. This man didn't see Jesus as a treasure. This man didn't see Jesus as a thing to be delighted in. So we stand here today as a people who claim that God has enraptured our soul. He has brought us to spiritual life. He has vivified us. And that very first act of this new life, that very first reflex as a new creation, that very first gasp of life is that we hate that which we once loved and we cling to Jesus Christ as everything. Is that what you see in your life? Because what you'll find is that when this does happen, if this does happen, there is nothing that the God of this world can hold before you that's gonna lure you away. It's like you found a treasure of immeasurable price in a field. Or you found a pearl of infinite worth. There's nothing that's going to drag you away. There's nothing that's going to convince you to let loose of it. It will consume you. There's no need for heavy-handed speeches. There's no need for fast talk. There's no need for compulsion. Your heart will be turned and you'll want him more than anything else. Give me Jesus and nothing else. Again, I say he will be your ultimate treasure. And whatever you have to give up for his sake, you will count it as a bargain. You won't be looking back over your shoulder, always thinking about the things that you've left behind. It will count as nothing compared to Christ. Dear friends, Jesus Christ will be your everything. But the cost to follow him will take everything else. We come this morning to a very familiar portion of Scripture. Just before Jesus leaves the temple there in Jerusalem for the last time as a free man, it's Tuesday, the 11th day of Nisan, the year 30 AD, by Thursday night. Jesus will be arrested. but Before he goes, he draws our attention to a very unlikely hero. He uses the poor woman to show us just a beautiful picture of what faith in God, what true devotion to the Lord looks like. So I invite you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence, a reading of God's word. We return to the 12th chapter of Mark's gospel. We begin in the 41st verse. This is the word of God. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who contribute to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we ask you this morning to do what only you can do. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe, transform lives as a result of meeting with you here and sitting under the weight of your word. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 41 began like this, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. So after concluding his confrontation and condemnation of the religious leaders, Jesus moves on. He comes and he sits before the treasury. Now, you recall some months back that we talked about the general layout of the temple complex. You'll remember that the far outer portion, the outer court, it's marked by a colonnade, that this entire section, it's called the court of Gentiles. That this was the place, as best we can tell, this was the place where Jesus had done all this teaching. This is the place where Jesus had done all the instruction that we've studied over these last few months. It was there in the court of Gentiles. Just inside the court of Gentiles, this 35-acre span, just inside of that, through the gate called Beautiful, is a place called the court of women. Now it was only ceremonially clean Jewish men and women that were allowed to enter this area, this portion of the court. Now the nations, they had been called to come and pray in the court of Gentiles. But God's people, they could enter in into this court of women. Now, this historian called Josephus, he tells us that inside this court of women, that's where we would have found the treasury. It's the place where the offering boxes were located. We're told there would have been 13 offering boxes there, that seven of them were set apart for specific purposes, special offerings. But six of them, they were identified as a place to give your free will offerings, your general offerings. There would have also been priests there. Now on this Passover week, the crowd would have just swelled to incredible numbers. So there would have been hundreds of priests there. Someone would have walked into the temple complex. They would have come into the court of women, and a priest would have met them there and would have asked, what is your intention? He would have inspected their gift to make sure that it was in accordance with God's law for the offering that they intended to give, and then he would direct them to the proper box. We're also told that in the top of these boxes were receptacles. They're they're actually horns. They're shofars. You would have the big opening of the horn at the top, and then it would narrow down into the box to receive the money. Now, this design, is very similar to modern-day toll booths that you pass through, and it allows you to throw your quarters in without spilling them all over the road. Now, this design, it would have also served an acoustic role. You see, as you throw metal coins into horns, it's gonna make a noise. The bigger, heavier coins, they're gonna make a different noise than the lighter coins. Multiple coins, they're gonna make more noise than a single coin. You got this picture. So Jesus moves from the court of Gentiles into the court of women, And we don't know whether the crowd went with him. Did they give him some space because they sensed that he was moving deeper into the temple proper? We don't really know. But we do know that he's not there just for thoughtless people watching. He's there for a purpose. He's there to observe the people as they give their gifts. He sat down opposite the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Now we are so familiar with this story that we automatically assume that these rich people are the bad guys. That's the way it's more often than not told in Sunday school. We have this image in our head that what these men do is they come in and they take their larger coins and they trade them for smaller ones so that they'll have a whole lot more and it'll make more noise when they throw it in. Or that they go up to the treasury box and that they stand there just throwing in a little bit at a time, waiting as long as they can to make sure that everybody sees them as they give these big gifts. That's almost always the way that this is read. The difference, if you read the actual text, that's not even implied. Jesus doesn't tell us that these are bad guys. Now in that culture, certainly there would have been some people like that. Certainly there would have been some people that acted in that way and with those kind of motives, but that's not the point that God's making through Mark here. Jesus will speak about the givers shortly. What we know is these are rich people. Rich people have lots of money, and just as today, God called his people to give in accordance with their ability. People with lots of money ought to give lots of money. That's God's standard. So these people, we're not told that they're wrong. This is the system by which they were supposed to give. They gave in accordance with their ability, And Jesus isn't condemning them for this. In fact, they may have been doing very well. But again, I tell you that back in that part of the world, in that day and age, it was generally assumed that wealthy people were under the blessing of God, that only wealthy people could be close to God. Now, we know that this is wrong. Now, there are certainly instances in scripture where God has just blessed his people, those who are faithful to him, with fantastic wealth. Yet, at the same time, we know that there's others. The majority, in fact, of wealthy people that are so captured by their wealth that they will never enter into the kingdom of God. But dear friends, I need to tell you that today, so much of the world has fallen into the opposite ditch. So many of the world today, they seek to judge people based on equally ungodly standards. Some groups are identified as inherently good. Some groups are identified as inherently evil, despite anything having to do with the way they live their lives. The righteously oppressed and the evil oppressors despite any actual oppressing taking place, based on race, based on gender, based on economic status, we immediately attribute to people motives and evil in their heart that isn't there, based on the actions that they carry out, based on the actual state of their heart. Many within the church, they'll fall for these very same lies. Believing that the rich people must automatically be evil. Blessing that somehow being poor is automatically a virtue. But it's simply not true. Not only is it not true, it's in direct opposition to the gospel. God does say that the love of money is the root of all evil. But it's not merely the possession of it. The call to follow after Jesus Christ is not automatically a vow of poverty. But for some people it just might be. But you've got to understand that the majority of rich people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The majority of poor people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The way is narrow and the path is hard, which leads to life and few will find it. Jesus is not condemning these men because they are rich. He is not rejecting their gifts because they are large. But it's not only rich people that are in this portion of the temple. There's a woman there as well. Verse 42, a poor woman came. Now Jesus had just condemned the religious leaders. Some of them were rich, but he had just condemned the religious leaders and in part, he would condemn them because of the way they treated widows. You'll remember that we read last week, beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses. These men not only failed to love and care for widows as God had commanded, they took advantage of them. They used their weakness, their insecurity to meet their own evil desires. So Jesus had condemned these men for that kind of action. And now here comes a widow, a poor widow. Now there's some people that tell us that this widow, that the reason that she is poor is because of the advantage this religious system has taken of her. I don't, I don't, I think you're reading something into the text. I don't find that inherent within the text. It may be the case, but we do know some things about the woman. We know that she's a widow. She doesn't have a husband because her husband died. I believe we can safely assume one of two things. Either this woman doesn't have any sons or her sons are either unable or unwilling to care for her. It's generally assumed that when a woman's husband dies, that if she has children that are able, they're gonna to come to her aid. That's a good rule for today. Children, honor your parents. Grown children, honor your parents until the day they die. But there was no one there to care for this woman. Scripture tells us that she was poor. Now a poor widow came, and she put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And two small copper coins are called a lepta in Greek. They're tiny and light. It's the coin of the lowest, the lowest value. Historians tell us that this may have been the lowest denomination coin ever struck in the history of the world. These small copper coins called a lepta. In the King James translation, they're called a mite. That's just an old English word for something of very little value. When I went to Israel, I bought my girls. There's shops there, and you could find some some mites, some lepta, that are from some time around, the days when, when Jesus was walking this temple complex, and so I bought some for my girls, and I brought them back, and just... It's a cool thing to me, a reminder of this widow's incredible devotion. And then I wonder, what did I just pay for that mite? But it really is. It's it's just a cool thing to look and be reminded. is all this woman had. Now, in case you're wondering what the value of a lepta is, two lepta equal one quadrants. A quadrants equals one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius, of course, equals one average laborer's daily wage. So, what this woman had was 164th, or 1.5625%, of what an average worker be earns in one day. Go work for 7.5 minutes, and that's about what you'll earn. And that's what this woman had. Truly, a little tiny offering that she threw in. Verse 43 And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, and as a statement of great authority, of course, all of Jesus' words carry absolute authority, but whenever he says something like this, truly I say to you, or assuredly, or verily, or amen, we do well to perk up. This is another opportunity. As he calls his disciples to him, this is another opportunity for instruction. This is just another touch, like that blind man that he healed in two stages, just another touch to help his disciples then and his disciples today see more clearly the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Now, as I said earlier, there's a number of, preachers and commentators that believe that this woman was just a victim of the religious system one of my preaching heroes a guy guy named john macarthur he says that jesus is not actually honoring this woman for what she has done that he's merely pointing out that this is the horrendous place that that you'll be led if you don't watch out for the scribes and pharisees as much as i hate to disagree with dr macarthur I, i can't see that here it seems to me that what jesus is doing by drawing attention to this woman is he's holding her up for us this is a picture of something that he wants us to emulate. But he said last week, beware, watch out, don't follow after the scribes and Pharisees. And today he says, behold, watch, work in the way that this woman is doing. seems to me that he's holding her up to us. She's the hero of the story. And what Jesus is celebrating here isn't what, that the woman was poor. He's not celebrating her poverty. He's celebrating her offering. These two small coffer coin, copper coins, just a penny. And Jesus said that these are more than all that everyone else has given. But how does that work? You had rich men giving rich gifts. And you've got this poor woman, maybe the poorest woman in the entire temple. She throws her two small lepta into the box and Jesus says that it's the biggest gift of the day, that she's given the most, indeed. If you read the King James translation, what it says is that Jesus sat down and he watched how the people gave. And that's the key, isn't it? How? How do you give to God? Now look, Jesus could have known what the woman gave just by watching the coins. Jesus could have known what the woman gave just by the sound that the coins made as they went into the shofar. But I submit to you this morning that Jesus knew about this woman because Jesus knows the hearts of men. Had he seen this woman like he saw Nathaniel sitting beneath a fig tree before he ever met him? Had he seen this woman wrestling in her heart, struggling in her spirit with what she needed to give because she knew exactly what it was going to cost her? Whatever the case, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this woman has given more than all the rest. This penny weighs more than the mountain of silver that was collected on that day. He goes on to explain why. Verse 44 For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. These rich people, they gave out of their abundance, they gave out of their excess. They were never going to miss this money. Again, Jesus wasn't condemning them, but he was saying what they gave cannot compare to the gift of the widow. They reached into their purses, heavy with their riches, and they pulled out money, even great sums of money, but they were never going to miss it. There was plenty more where that came from. There was no struggle. They didn't have to wonder if they were being reckless. They could throw in whatever amount they wanted and never wonder if they were going to be able to provide for themselves the next day. There was no risk involved. They weren't pushing themselves deeper into dependence upon God. They weren't placing themselves in a spot where they had to look forward to treasures in heaven. They were gonna be okay no matter what. And so their gift was less than hers because they gave from their abundance. Dear friends, I would argue, argue with you that that's exactly the way the vast majority of us give. Do you know the term de minimis? It's a Latin term. It's a finance term, de minimis. It's two words. It means an amount of such little value that it doesn't really merit any attention. Now if your family is anything like mine, you've probably got some unspoken de minimis value. Some amount of money that you spend without even thinking about it. Some amount of money that you can spend without checking with your spouse. Now obviously that amount moves as your income grows and changes and you age. But for young couples, oftentimes, every last expenditure you make, it's well above the de minimis value. You've gotta think through it, you've gotta talk about it. I remember as a young couple, back when the nursery was right here, Right in this coffee room was the nursery. And I remember after church on Sundays, all the young couples standing around and looking in our checkbook to figure out which one of us had enough money to cobble together that we could go out to eat after church. Half the group would go, we're out, we're broke. The other half would go, we got a little bit extra. But then as we grew and we aged and our incomes expanded, we didn't even think about eating out anymore. It wasn't a problem. It was well below the de minimis value. Now certainly we knew we had to have our limits, but it didn't cause us to give pause. For many of you in this room, that number is well above and beyond that. It's in the hundreds of dollars. For many of you in this room, you go out and you find something that you want or you need, and it's 500 bucks. You don't even think about it. You don't check with your wife. You just buy it. You don't even flinch. Church, I would argue that the vast majority of professing Christian believers, the money they give to their church is somewhere equal to that de minimis value. They'll never miss it. They'll never think about it. It will never push them to grow in faith never pushed them to long for treasures in heaven. It requires no real thought. It requires no real faith. It requires no real trust in God. They give from their excess. But this woman, she gave from her poverty. Scripture says she gave everything. That tells us that she was destitute. Here in America, we throw the word poor around an awful lot. Anybody that can't drive a new truck, they're poor. Anybody that has to wear old clothes, they're poor. Anybody that has to work two jobs, they're poor. Dear friends, there's very, very few people in America that are truly poor, truly destitute. The vast majority is for a long way short of that, but not this woman. She was living in legitimate poverty. So much so that these two small copper coins, they were literally all that she had. This wasn't all she carried around. This wasn't all she had until the next payday. These two left were literally everything she had, and that's what made this woman's offering the most, the greatest. Now commentators have rightly noticed that what Jesus is showing us here is that it's not how much you put in the pot, it's how much you hold back for yourself that matters. And this woman gave absolutely everything. She had nothing left. Now it's possible that this woman did not even know where her next meal was going to come from, but she so trusted in God to provide. She had seen God provide for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. She knew knew that he knew her needs and he was going to meet every last need. So she gave everything that she had, literally everything. Her neighbors would have called her reckless and crazy, irresponsible. Who does a thing like this? She had absolutely nothing left. And yet Jesus Christ says that she gave more than all the rest. I need you to see this. Because when you view it in this way, what you recognize is that everyone has the opportunity to give the same. These rich men, they could have given just as much as this woman, but they weren't going to do it. They weren't going to let loose of their riches. They weren't going to give everything that they had. To them, that seemed crazy. But to this woman, it seemed like faith. She didn't give from some stack of wealth. She didn't give from her abundance. She gave everything that she had, all that she had to live on. The Greek word there for all that she had to live on is bios. It means life, as in biology, the study of life. This woman gave everything that she had her whole life. Jesus had called the rich young ruler to do the very same thing. He called him to give away everything that he had. The man knelt in the dirt before Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He told him there's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to capture it by yourself. But if you're going to follow after me, the author, the giver, the goal, the substance of eternal life, then you must give everything, your whole life. He who would seek to save his life will lose it. But he who gives his life for my name's sake will find it. So he had told the man, but he wouldn't do it. He loved his stuff too much. He was going to be rational. He was going to be reasonable. He needed to hold on for something, didn't he? Give me some portion, but not all. Jesus just called him to give all and he wouldn't. It wasn't that the money was evil. We're not told that the man had somehow captured this money through deceit or through lies or through theft of some sort. But he had captured his heart. I wonder if this rich young man was maybe one of the men that was giving money here in the temple complex on this day. I wonder if that man had come just as so many other to Passover and he was giving these large offerings and he had still believed that he was good. He was still carrying on as a nice, well-respected religious man, thinking that he had somehow found his way into the kingdom of God. Not knowing that that idol had remained in his life. Not knowing that he would live eternally separated from God. But this poor woman, she did what the rich young man would not, she gave everything. And so I know how this goes i sat through enough of these sermons. You're waiting for the punchline. I've sat where you sat, and I know how this goes. Because the preacher gets to this. He preaches about the rich young ruler that refused to give up everything. We preach about the widow that did give everything. And the preacher is so quickly to say, whoa, 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 but, but, but look, God is not saying that in order to follow him, you must literally give everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. Here's what needs to happen. Everybody, you just need to give a nice portion. Just give a portion of what you have. Then we'll be able to meet the needs of the church, and then nobody has to sacrifice. Nobody has to suffer. Nobody has to get crazy with this thing. Just do your part. Just everybody do your part. And then we can meet the needs here. And we'll all walk away okay. And then what happens is everybody breathes a big sigh of relief. Any sense of conviction you are feeling goes away. And you leave this place completely unchanged. Dear friends, I won't do it. I love you too much and there's too much at stake. I will not say those words. Not only will I not say those words, I'm going to tell you to stop thinking them. What I'm going to say to you in a moment is going to be very uncomfortable. So I need you to hear me very, very clearly. There is no way to be forgiven of sin, there is no way to have eternal life, there is no way to follow after Jesus Christ while holding on to the things of this world. The only way To be made right with God is by repenting of your sin and following after his son, Jesus Christ. And he said the cost of following after me is everything. Lest you think I've made up the words, let me remind you. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Christian, you must know that there are two types of people in this world. There are disciples of Jesus Christ and there are the damned. So, you're going to follow after Jesus Christ. You seek to have eternal life. You say farewell to everything. He may well call you to sell everything you have and give it away in order to follow after him. In fact, if you want to give the way that this widow gave, that's exactly what it's going to take. It's exactly what it's going to cost you. I'm not telling you whether or not this is God's call on your life. Please hear me. I learned as a young man not to go around counting other people's money. I don't preach this as a man looking into your pocketbook. I'm not here to tell you what you're supposed to give. I need you to know that this sermon, just like every other sermon I've ever preached, it strikes first my own heart. I preached this to myself. You people are just here to listen. I'm not looking in your checkbook and telling you what you're supposed to give. Now as your pastor. If you think you wanna come to me and talk to us, I will give you counsel, I will pray with you, and I will offer you godly counsel, biblical counsel. I'll pray with you and help you to find God's will in this area if that's what you want. I believe that's part of my calling as as a shepherd, as a pastor, but I'm not standing here today counting your money, I'm not standing here this morning telling you what portion of what God's entrusted to you he's gonna allow you to keep and what portion he's gonna allow you to give away. What I'm calling you to do though is sit at the table with him and put it all out. I'm calling you in these moments to come to take every last thing that's been entrusted to you, every last thing that you hope to have in the future. Sit before God, put it on the table, and say, it is all yours. Now you tell me what to do with it. Don't pull away. Many of you are already pulling away. Stop. Don't check out. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's scary. I ask you to engage your hearts, to engage your minds, To sit before God and allow his spirit to convict you. Allow him to determine how you're going to move forward as a family. As a believer in Jesus Christ. And I would ask you, no matter how much you give, do not assume that God doesn't want you to go further with him in this area. You need to understand that as an act of love, God may call you into some deep and scary waters. God just might give you the opportunity to do what this widow did. Secondly, I didn't choose to preach this sermon because of anything having to do with the needs of this church. God doesn't need your money. He is the giver of all things. He does not receive anything from the hands of man. He says in one place, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. God gives all things. He needs no things. And as his people, I stand before you with complete confidence that God will meet every last need of this church. Everything that he has called us to do every last ounce of ministry. Our Father in heaven will meet it, he knows what we need. Now it is his normal practice to meet those needs through the regular giving of the people that are members of this church. We'll talk about finances, Wednesday night. You wanna know when we're gonna talk about money? Wednesday night at 7.30, be here, I hope you'll all be here. Wednesday night, 7.30, business meeting, we'll talk about money, but we ain't talking about money today, I'm talking about your heart. This isn't about finances, this isn't about budgeting. This isn't about mathematics or percentages. This is about your heart. This is about what you delight in most in this world. What do you cherish most in this world? So allow me to ask you some diagnostic questions. This will hurt. I'm going to poke around until you say, Al. As a follower of Jesus Christ, can you honestly say that the way in which you give requires a deep abiding trust in God, a reliance upon the Holy Spirit, or do you give according to the flesh? Does the way in which you give force your dependence upon God to grow, or are you always holding back like a man with a backup plan? Does the way in which you give offer evidence that you trust in the promises of God and look forward to eternal inheritance? If the non-believing world were to find out what you gave to God, would they call you reasonable or reckless? If your heart follows after your treasure and vice versa, what does your giving say about your heart? To whom does your heart belong? I got a lot that I want to say. I've got three years worth of thoughts. Thoughts about giving to god i'm going to trust the holy spirit to do what i can't do i will say this so many of these sermons so many of these sermons they begin and end with a pastor talking about what's required what's owed doing your part and and they hold to the old testament law the tithe look there's plenty of faithful pastors that believe that god's standard for his people is still that you owe to god 10 of your gross income but guys, don't you see how that missed this point? Jesus Christ came to elevate everything. That includes your giving. Dear friends, I submit to you this morning that 10% doesn't even come close for the vast majority of us sitting in this room. In addition to that, pastors will stand up and they'll they'll talk about the sin of failing to give. And listen, I I know that some of you, perhaps many of you, give very little or nothing to this church. It's just a mathematical certainty. It's a statistical certainty. There's too many studies on this thing. It, we know that that's what the average church looks like. And look, that's a that's a problem. Yes, that's a sin. Go go read about Achan in Joshua seven. This man that. His sin hurt the whole nation of Israel and it ended up with the death of his family. His family was stoned and burned as a result of this man's sin. So look, if you're not giving to God or if you already know, if you already know in your heart that you're not giving in the way that God has commanded you to give, yes, yes, that sin is going to affect the church that you love. It's going to affect the family that you lead. And so I'll say this, if that's you, just confess your sin. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ to strengthen you. Fall on your face before God and don't talk about money. Ask him to turn your heart. Ask him to transform your heart and make Jesus your ultimate delight. But I beg you, do not walk out of this place feeling condemned. This is not the unforgivable sin. This is not the irredeemable sin. This is not the unconquerable sin. I know what drives it. It's love. It's an unbiblical love. It's a disordered love. It's a love which loves man without first loving God with all that you have. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, you will give all to me. And then you can rightly love those around you. And so driven by love and driven by fear, the fear that you won't be able to provide for your family, the fear that you won't be able to meet your needs, driven by fear that you won't be able to provide. So dear friends, especially your brothers, let me give you a word of encouragement. You don't provide squat. It all comes from God. It all comes from God. There's not a morsel of food that you have ever sat on your family's table that did not come from God. So let loose. Let loose. He said to test him. So test him. For you couples in this room, you've been joined together as one flesh. Sit down and talk about this. Pray about this together. There's no my money, your money. You are one. So come together and pray about this. If you're married to a non-believer, what I say to you, is to allow them to see your love of Christ. Put your love and your delight and your faith in Christ on full display as you give sacrificially in whatever, whatever way you're able. In whatever way possible, who knows, that may well be the thing that God uses to win your spouse to them. But no matter the situation, I need you to hear me very, very clearly. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to pressure you. I am not trying to manipulate you into giving a dime this morning. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I do not want you, God does not want you to give under compulsion. Each of you must give as you have determined in your heart. And that's a whole lot harder than me throwing out a percentage. Have you ever had anybody do some work for you? They built something and they performed some task and you say, okay, well, what do I owe you? And they say, well, just pay me what you think it's worth. God of the Bible calls out to you and he says, just give me what you've decided in your heart. You wish I'd go back to the 10%, don't you? Give me what you decided in your heart. Don't you see? This isn't about mindless obedience. It's isn't about math or finance. It's the condition of your heart. What have you decided to give in your heart? Because it's only then that you can give joyfully. It's only then you can please God in your giving. Whether you give a portion or you give everything. You see, this, this poor widow woman, she could have given these two lepta. She could have given everything that she had and still displeased God if she gave under compulsion. If she didn't give cheerfully. So I plead with you. If you can't give cheerfully, if you can't give joyfully this morning, keep your money. I don't want it. God doesn't want it. But how? How do I give joyfully? How do I give sacrificially when I'm terrified? How do I give joyfully and sacrificially when I've spent my entire life spending everything I earn or saving it up so I can spend it in the future? How do I give joyfully and sacrificially when I've always just thrown some penance, some diminutive amount, some thoughtless amount, some amount that never caused me to grow in faith, some amount that never drove me to a corner where I had to trust in God, some amount that never forced me to stand up on a platform and say, all my weight stands here. God, if you don't show up, I'm in trouble then how do you give like this? I think the key is found in the great commandment. I owe my thoughts in this area to John MacArthur. He's the one that opened my eyes, I mean, excuse me, John Piper. He's the one that opened my eyes to this and you'll find the same line of thought running throughout the writings of, of Jonathan Edwards. I owe all my thoughts in this area to the way in which God has used these two men to plant these seeds. These are not my own thoughts. They didn't originate with me, but once I found them, as I mold them over, as I experienced their reality in my life, as they found expression in my life. They became my own, and it became the most obvious thing I'd ever seen. I can't unsee it. Everywhere I look, it's leaping out to me. Every sermon I preach is tainted, or tainted, painted, colored by it. It comes back to this, this great commandment. I, I preached to you a sermon four weeks ago, I think it was, and I want to re-preach it, but it's critical. I begged you then to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. God says this is the greatest, Jesus says this is the greatest commandment. The greatest and ultimate commandment is literally love God with everything you have and everything that you are. And we talked about the fact that this would make God an eagle maniac. were he not the highest and greatest and most magnificent being in all the universe, or if he called us to do this to meet some need in himself. But this isn't it at all. What God has said is that I literally made you for this. You're created for a relationship with me. The very purpose for your existence is to glorify me and enjoy me forever. And therefore, as you love me this way, you'll find your ultimate satisfaction, your truest delight as you come to me, as you love me, as you trust me, as you find dependence in me, you'll find real satisfaction for the first time in your entire life. That's the greatest commandment. So God commands you to love him with everything that you have, with everything that you are, with everything at your disposal, you've got to see what he's calling you is to act in your own best interest. He's saying to engage the whole of yourself, every ounce of everything that you have at your disposal. Engage that in enjoying your ultimate source, your ultimate goal. Find true and lasting joy, a fountain of unending pleasures in me. And dear friends, what I'm calling you to do this morning is to engage your money in this to include your money in your enjoyment of God, to include your money in true pleasures, not wasting pleasures. I'm inviting you to stop settling for less. That's what God has called us to do. And he's assured us that when we come to him in this way, that that love will drive out fear. When you come to love God like this, that fear isn't a thing anymore you realize there's nothing that can be lost he's promised to be with you until the end of the age and there's nothing that can rip you from his hands so fear comes off the table just like that we're not talking about requirement we're not talking about duty we're talking about joy I'm talking about mocking the world as you freely give away that which they devote their lives to hoarding for themselves I'm talking about glorifying God as you prove to the world that he is worth more than anything that they have to offer I'm talking about using the gifts and the talents that God has given you to go out and make mountains of money that you can give it back to him through this church, that this very same gospel can be preached to other people, that they can join you in this joy. They can delight in the same God with you. I'm talking about fighting to keep things away that would hamper your joy. I'm talking about refusing things that are going to dull your senses. I'm talking about coming to God and finding joy. He's giving you the gift of money to include in that. He's giving you the gift of finances to include in that. So I'm calling you to fight. I'm calling you to be a man, put on your big boy pants, and fight. Stop settling for the trash of this world. Please tell me that you see this. That the more of this stuff that you hold on to, the more you allow your senses to get dulled, the more you fill your arms up with this other stuff, the more anxiety you have about this stuff being lost, the more you miss out on the joys of God. The pleasures of God, of delighting in God. So I'm asking you to join me in this fight. I know it's terrifying. That's what Satan wants. He wants you to be afraid. He wants to convince you that God's a liar. He wants to leave you standing with Peter and the other disciples saying, But if I love you like this, what will be left for me? He says, Everything. I will be your everything. You ever have a thought or an experience you just wish you could just take out of your head and just throw it into other people? There's so many in this room that are feeling that for some of you right now. Because they've tasted it. They've seen it. We're not talking about treasure someday when you die in heaven. We're talking about treasure today. We're talking about joy today. We're talking about delighting in Christ today. Like right now. No matter your circumstances. We see a beautiful picture of this in Scripture. Paul talks about it. Turn with me there, please. 2 Corinthians 8. We're going to finish here. 2 Corinthians 8. Paul paints for us a beautiful picture of this, what it looks like to find true joy, an abundance of joy in the middle of affliction, in the middle of poverty. So, Paul, of course, is writing to the Corinthian church and he's urging them to give generously. He's doing what I'm doing right now. He's pleading with his people. He's saying, don't hold back a portion, don't hedge your bets. Don't worry about tomorrow. Just give it all. Put it all on the table. And he's pointing them to the church in Macedonia. He's saying you need to look to them and you'll see a picture there. So 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in severe a test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflown in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. These people were begging Paul, let us give. Don't just let us give a percentage. Don't just let us give accordance with our means. Let us give more than we're able to give. Let us give beyond our means. But look at verse 2. What does it say there? Extreme poverty. That's the word that Paul uses. He's talking like we're talking about that desperate widow, right? These people are legit poor in their extreme poverty. Skip down a bit. And it says, in a severe test of affliction. What do you find right in the middle of that? Literally, what do you find right in the middle of that? an abundance of joy surplus of joy we don't have much money but we got excess joy around this joint we got joy to go around how they had tasted and seen they knew that Jesus Christ was worth more than everything else this world had to offer this affliction it's nothing it's passing it's nothing we're suffering for the name of Jesus Christ and we counted a joy a treasure a delight an honor Our poverty, who cares? Take the rest of what we have. It's not about the riches of this world. We find joy because we have tasted Jesus Christ. And from that, what's the overflow of that? We give more. Why? They didn't have anything. Why would they give more? Because they knew that was a buffer around their joy. They're building a hedge around their joy, a protection around their joy. They said, we're not going to hold on to this stuff because it's going to hamper our joy. It's going to threaten to rob us. If we had a couple extra dollars in the bank, it might get in the way. It might dull our senses. It might rob us of what we want most, more Christ. (laughs) Guys, tell me you see this. You're going to have to think about money eventually. Like eventually it's going to come down to money. You and your spouse, you're going to sit down, you're going to pray. You're going to ask God, okay, God, how much are you going to force me to keep and how much are you going to let me give away? What needs are you going to force me to meet through my own labor and what are you going to allow me to give away that other can join me in this joy? How big a hedge are you going to allow me to build around the joy, the delight, the pleasures that I have in you? But for today, it's not the day. Today is not the day to figure out the the amounts, the dollars, the money. I'm calling you to just allow God to examine your heart and say, do I love you like this? Do I find true joy in the middle of affliction like this? Do I find joy in the middle of poverty like this? Guys, I've never prayed harder before a sermon than I have before this one. This is, this is so critical. There are so many believers that shipwreck their faith at this point right here. They have all the markings of a follower of Jesus Christ and then they get to this point right here and it goes off the rails. Dear friends, I plead with you. I plead with you based on the promises of the Holy Word in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I promise you he will be your everything and you will not miss a bit of it. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have chosen to include us in this magnificent work of preaching the gospel, calling, winning men and women by the work of your spirit to yourself. So, Father, it is my deepest desire that you would help us to get right in this area. That we would not see this as duty, as requirement, as responsibility, as mathematics, as finances. Father, that we would see this as an examination of our heart. So, Father, I beg you this morning, stir in our hearts. Do not allow us to hit this door and leave whatever we feel in this moment behind. Change us. Transform us. and rapture us. Father, we pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.